Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And today, our guest is Trisha Perdo, and she is going to talk a little bit about her own recovery journey, but more importantly, what to do after treatment and how do you create a strong recovery lifestyle. It was great to talk with her about the practical steps that individuals can take to begin to create that recovery lifestyle and create the meaningful life that is meaningful to them. Before we start, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, don't forget, click the subscribe button and maybe share the podcast with a friend or even write a review. I really do appreciate that. And it really does help get the podcast a lot of exposure. And if you want to continue the conversation online, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join, and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Trisha Perdo, and we're going to talk about, I think, a very important topic, which is once you've gone through treatment and you've maybe established some sobriety in your life, what do you do next? How do you create the life that you want? So I'm excited to have you on as a guest. Why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about you and how you got into this work and all that kind of stuff. Well, my name is Trisha Perido. I'm an international master addictions coach, along with whatever 11, whatever other credentials that fall behind that, right, right, um, right. you know, certainly we don't need to list all of that out, but truly I'm a recovery lifestyle enthusiast and, and it is deeply my passion to help people attain sober lifestyles that are fulfilling for them. And don't get me wrong because I've worked in every level of addiction treatment. All of them are very beneficial. They all have a very specific purpose and they are very valid. What happened for me and what caused my, you know, five and a half year education journey and the couple years of researching and observing and creating 
what is now, you know, Turning Leaves Live Free program and Evolve is, is when I went into treatment, right? So let me be quick to say, I have a very long 30 year story of addictions, negative attachments and habits that were just holding me hostage in life. But I also have a 25 year, (laughs) 25 year recovery journey. And that is because not everything was ready to recover at the same time. Now, the last bit was getting rid of the alcohol and the benzodiazepines. Of course, the benzodiazepines of what actually took me out. That is my story. I had an interesting 20s. Anyway, in my early 30s, I developed generalized anxiety disorder. Prescriber, I was a very open daily drinker, right? I had worked really hard to get my, my, to be a high functioning alcoholic and to be able to keep my daily drinking. Like I worked really hard so that it wasn't derailing. I mean, we had five kids, we had, you know, things to do. So it wasn't something that was devastating my life. Sure. I had the ugly periods in my early days because I did start drinking at 12. (laughs) So there was a lot of ugliness early on, but you know, as an adult, anyway, what, you know, my provider knew I was a daily drinker and sure I was an adult. I know you don't mix things and I didn't mix things. However, my physical body mixed it. They prescribed me Xanax for low dose Xanax to use as needed for my anxiety. (laughs) Well, over this five year period of time that they prescribed it to me freely with no (laughs) real interjection, no real push, you know, for mental health support to figure out what was truly figuring out what was truly going on with where did that anxiety come from, which PS (laughs) emptiness syndrome is a real deal. You know, over that five and a half year period of time, anybody that has, and I hadn't studied it, but I did first thing out of treatment, it synergistically exacerbated, right? So now my alcohol alcohol intake capability (laughs) went sky high. And, And so it got to a place where I, for the first time in my life at 43, found myself stuck in a physiological addiction. Now it became physical. Now it became real. I had my whole life been able to always get, keep myself in check. I'm a control freak, right? So I've had eating disorders, all the things, people pleasing, codependence, all the things I had no control. It was the shakes, the nausea, the everything. And it was like, okay, no, 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 no. This doesn't work for my control freak. Right. Right. And Xanax, uh, you know, it has that kickback effect. So it, you know, anxiety sucks. And when you have yeah. like really bad anxiety, oh man, you want out now and Xanax will do that now, but then it has a kickback effect of then intensifying it later. And you get in that, like you said, that feedback loop and you just keep, just keep getting worse and worse and the anxiety gets worse and worse. And then you have no skills to deal with it and Thank you're you. stuck. hundred percent. No skills. I don't know about you. I'm in my fifties. <laughs> my my parents <laughs> are of that generation where you just kind of sweep things under the rug, put some nice clothes on, put your smile. face on, smile, <laughs> and and nobody sees anything, yeah. right? So I mean, yeah. at a young age, at four, I was already hiding things, right? My first sexual trauma was at four, and and I was like, oh, okay, just don't tell anybody, right? Just don't tell anybody. Like nobody has, you know, nobody has to know at four. Like we weren't yeah. taught emotional intelligence. We weren't taught impulse control, distress tolerance, and emotion regulation. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know any of that. And so you're just, well, alcohol works. You find it. Xanax works in the moment. You find it. It's like, wow, this works. I, you know, I don't even have to sweep this under the rug. 
I just don't feel it. <laughs> well, and, and so at 12, that was what, you know, my dad had been killed in a, in a sudden accident. And, and so we're after the funeral and I remember going, I, I you know, I was looking at all of the grownups and I'm like, wow, how are they smiling and talking and, you know, like engaging, you know, like, hmm, how is this not like a mortifying day for them? And every single one of them had alcohol and cigarettes. Right. Well, right. let's go give it a shot. And guess what? It worked. So on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, anyway, so, you know, when I went to treatment and I did a lot of vetting, I spent two months getting to know every practitioner that was involved in the treatment program that I hand selected for myself. Cause I was like, if wow. I'm going to do this, I'm, and this is a big message. So hopefully everybody just rewinds and listens to what I just said. I vetted the treatment facility and every person that worked there before I went. I, I think that is so important. When I needed to talk. I called them when I had a question. I did. I think they were done with me before I got there, but I had to know that where I was going was actually going to address my things that they weren't going to force yeah. me to do trauma therapy on things that I had already healed from that. It wasn't about that for me. And I needed to know that I had some autonomy in my treatment program and my, in the protocol that I had to follow. It was important for you to follow your own way. Yeah. And I did. And guess what? It worked. So 30 days, you know, detox, they told me it was gonna be seven to 10. I'm again, an overachiever control freak. I was out in three. <laughs> I checked myself <laughs> in sober. They were like, you know, they, they tested me like three times. I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, well, it's showing it's, I think the machine's broke. It's you're blowing 0.00. I'm like, I checked myself in on purpose. Like <laughs> I planned this right. anyway. But so then I went to program 30 days later, you know, you know, left, did a little bit of an intensive outpatient for a few weeks. And then the discharge plan was go to AA and find a therapist close to you because it was a distance, right? Okay, great. Right. Find a therapist and go to AA. Well, the city I lived in didn't have AA. So now I had to go to the next town over and go to AA with people that weren't, they weren't my peers, to, to right, say it right. appropriately. They weren't my peers. We didn't have the same type of lifestyle. It wasn't a fit. We had it nothing didn't, to relate You couldn't about. connect. Yeah, there you was no connect. connecting. And then, you know, the therapist that I could find in my area had no addiction background. She was a great therapist and we had a wonderful woman's group and it was very beneficial for me. So I went to school instead. Signed up, Saddleback right. College, Human Services Addiction Track, and I just took one class at a time until I started, you know, until I got to a place where I could take on a full load because I needed to learn what happened to me. Like right. why at 43 was I suddenly in this place of lacking control? <laughs> and you're dr driven by that curiosity. And it sounds like, you know, going to that therapist and going to that group, you could tell something wasn't right for you. And I think that's such an important voice to listen to that a lot of times people don't and they just do that. You got to look a little bit inward and is this working for me? Am I going where I'm going to go? It sounds like that wasn't working for you in those moments. And you said, well, I got to find it myself. Yeah, hundred percent. And it, it was just on from there. All of my programs overlapped, you know, the, the human services program, because in that I found coaching as a modality 
and it fit my personality. Again, so anybody that's aspiring to be a practitioner, find the modality that speaks your language because you're going to help more people. Right. You're right. going to help more people if you find the modality that fits you. So then, so I went into an intensive coaching program that's accredited for addiction and started my psychology degree studies, of course, again, in behavioral psychology, the focus on addiction, where I studied all things process behavioral and chemical addiction in nature, and also up to and including writing my capstone on coaching as an effective psychological practice. Right. Wow. That's awesome. So you could combine all that together and that modality of coaching, which I view it's very, I want to say practical, directive, action oriented, that fit your personality where a lot of therapy can be inward looking, looking at past trauma, understanding family of origin, which you do in coaching too. I mean, they overlap, but yeah, I can understand how coaching would be very directive. When you pull in psychology, counseling, and coaching all together, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I want people to know that there are so many options because here's the deal. I'll say this first, and then <laughs> if we as practitioners are learning the skill sets we need to serve the clientele, what I found was in my, because this was my recovery journey, was education to learn about myself. So I was my first test case. So what I did was I took all of those psychological tactics, <laughs> converted them into a coaching model, coached myself the practical application of those psychological tactics in my life. I literally, and I'm nine years alcohol and benzo free. Again, my recovery journey started a long time ago because anorexia, food addictions, shopping addiction, all the things, right? Trauma lots of things, but, but with this chemical addiction, the alcohol and, and benzodiazepines, you know, it's been nine years with the skill sets that I learned in school that I converted to be practical applications in my life, emotional intelligence. I, I actually figured out that it, everything that I did was create emotional intelligence. We aren't born with it. It's not innate. We have to cultivate it. We have to pursue it. We have to nurture it. And we have to condition it as our way of being. My husband trips out and come in and I'm listening to myself, talk to myself and listening to my own lessons that I teach my own clients. I'm like, look, I'm feeling right, yeah. space in my life and I just need the message. A absolutely. I totally get that. <laughs> I totally get that. Right? Because here's the thing. Okay, so back to treatment right? Because I love how you started this, that, that space after treatment, after we've got some recovery. I talked to a lot of people. I've been clean and sober for five years. I put down the alcohol and nothing got better. Well, okay, but that's the, the substance isn't really the problem. Sure, it exacerbates them, but there's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason right. it came about to begin with. And, and, and it's different for everybody. Some people, it's, you know, they they tell me there was no trauma. It wasn't that. It was just I, I was addicted out. No, there's something. There's something. Right, right. Somewhere along the line, something you weren't enough as an organic, authentic being for yourself. And you liked what you saw when you put in alcohol. It could be that simple. It could be that shallow, literally. Yeah. And so when I learned about the locus of control theory, it changed my life. So let's talk about that, what that means. Like what we're doing with all of these things, whether it's your 6 a.m. spin class, 
the Ben and Jerry's, the bucket of brownies, the 25 items not on your list when you go to Ross, Marshall's or Target, whatever that go to, the alcohol, the marijuana, that whatever it is, it's an external locus of control. You are relying on something outside of yourself to bring you peace, joy, comfort, relief, value, validity, worthiness. I don't know how many more adjectives do you want, right? We're relying on right. something outside of ourselves. Now, we're all born in the external locus of control position. Right, and as yeah. we grow, we are hopefully being led and modeled how to move into that internal locus control position. Parents, I hope you're listening. Sure, we teach our kids to dress themselves. We teach their, you know, all these things. But are we rewarding them? Like fall down, skin your knee, here's a lollipop. Get a shot at the doctors, here's a sucker. Um, right, you know, right, yeah. Your birthday, let's celebrate with lots of food. A anyway, you get the idea. So we really, we kind of stop midstream and we don't finish that. So that's that emotional intelligence piece. It's that moving into an internal locus of control position where this is how I came up with my life mantra. This is my life too. It gets to look, feel, be however I want it to. I get to choose. And in that, I get to offer that to every other being on the planet right. Earth. And it takes away the fact that most of us, most of society operates in the stance of a judger instead of the stance of a learner where inquiry, openness, and acceptance resides. We operate in the stance of the judger, which means we're rigid. Think about it. You're driving down the freeway. Why are you driving so slow? Look at that person. They're, they're distracted. Da, 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 da. Judge. Judge, judge, judge. Observe yourself for one day. Pick out every little place, you know, the way you look at somebody, the way they're dressed, or that you don't like their opinion. Judge, 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 whatever. I was thinking as you were talking, the, the, the two pieces there, where having that internal locus of control is empowering for you to be able to make changes. And that is a practical skill that you can learn to do. Yes. Like you don't just do it. You you can, I love the word nurture. Like you said earlier, this is something you nurture. This is something you grow. It's a skill set that you can develop that you have the power to do. Like that's almost you like the first step. You have to be mindful step. and willing. You have to and be mindful and willing. And willing. Yes. Yeah. Because people yeah. get tired of observing themselves. I'm tired of looking at myself. I'm tired of looking at myself. I'm tired of adjusting the way I think. I'm tired of having to pause before I open my mouth. And sure, it's hard work. I'm not going to lie. Oh, it I'm is not going to lie. It's hard I, work. I'm nine years and I still watch myself, right? But worth but, it. But worth it. <laughs> I would not. And this is the thing about sobriety, right? I wouldn't give it up for anything. My mental clarity, my ability to experience living the way that I want to experience living, experiencing my environment the way that I want to experience my environment and showing up the way I want to be received by my environment. Like I wouldn't right, give any right. of that up for anything. Yeah. There is it's too nothing valuable. that can happen in my life. And I can say that. And I know a lot of people in recovery are going to be like, Oh, you never know. There is nothing that could happen in my life. And my husband and I have talked about it deeply that that would make me say, I'm going to give up what I've accomplished. 
Because here's the deal. If you think about it, sure, the death of a child, people throw that out all the time. Sure. But how am I honoring my relationship with my child and, and by, by giving up everything that they are so proud of me for accomplishing? Think about it. Mm-hmm. They're up there and they can look down on me and they can't get to me and say, mom, don't do that. I want you to continue living. Please keep being productive in your life. Like how terrible for me to ruin their experience of transcending to the next place. That would be selfish. It would be selfish. There is nothing that could make me say, I'm done. I'm done. I just want to check out. Right. And that's that resiliency that comes from that. I have to do tune-ups. I have to stay in it. I have to be willing every day to notice if I'm not calm-centered, grounded, if my life balance, which in my work is 14 categories, <laughs> very big. If my life balance isn't matching my definition of what fills my life, my soul, not something in a book. If it's right. not right on, then I get, I get wiggly. Yeah. And I don't like to no, be wiggly. No, that makes sense. And that, that wiggleness that you described it also is the signal that you're probably not honoring yourself in some way. You're not listening to yourself. You're looking to the outside or trying to do something that's not congruent with yourself. And it's learning to to listen to that voice. So that kind of goes into my next question, which is like recovery lifestyle, right? Like we, sometimes we need that treatment. We need that containment to, to be able to get some basis to start this work. But let's talk about creating that lifestyle. Like how do you do that? And I what do you tell it. people? This is, this is that now what, what's next? Great. I I put the bottle down. I got 30 days of treatment. I'm going home. I got to learn how to open the refrigerator without reaching for a beer. You know, so a recovery lifestyle is what you want it. Again, remember, this is my life too. It gets to look, feel, be however I want it to. If you want your life going forward to look like every day I get up and I go to an AA meeting, I have my home group, I have my social support. And then from there, you know, I have a therapist I see once a week and, you know, I've got my job, all these things, whatever you want it to look and feel like, you've got to make sure that it's emotionally and cognitively rewarding for you. We have to learn how to live for ourselves first without feeling guilty, selfish, punished, or restricted. Right. Which can be very challenging if you have a different family of origin experience. Right. So for me... AA is a wonderful, it's a wonderful social support, but we've got to quit looking at it as an assertive continuum of care. And, and please, everybody, please don't hate on me, but get, don't, don't get me wrong. I love sponsors. I love everything about the 12 steps. I I love everything about AA. However, even if your sponsor is a licensed clinical practitioner that specialized in addiction, they cannot be your sponsor in that stance. Ethically, legally, they cannot be a clinical practitioner for you in that space. Right, right. So great. And maybe you don't need one, but we have to know what it was, why it was, and how we need to change things. Because if we're we're going home to the same house, spouse, kids, bills, job, environment that we were previously trying to avoid or show up for or whatever, we have to know why. We have to know why. right. Or we're just going home and we're white knuckling it through it. We're going to just go to my meetings, go to my therapy, go to my meetings, go to my therapy. And all those work. things, all of your environment stays the same. And you have all of that input that's just, it's, 
You have to it's learn how to really, hear it really through hard. a different filter. You have to learn how to hear it through a different filter, see it through a different lens. And it's not about picking a lens or a filter for that somebody else suggests you. It's about learning how to add, edit, delete, change, shift, morph, make it your own so that when the stimuli or whatever you want to call it is coming in, you know what to leave out because it's not for you and it's all about something or somebody else. You have to know how to hear it so that it doesn't screw you up for lack right, of better. Right. Right? Like if you get a text message that says, I can't believe you did that. How many different ways can you read that to yourself? You have to choose how you read it. So if you read it, I can't believe you did that. And the person meant, wow, I can't believe you did that. Like you just screwed it all up. Right. right. You could you change your perception. Yeah. Yep. So if yeah. you don't like the way you're perceiving your life, it's up to you to change your perception. Right. To change how you look at it, change how you feel about it. I love dialectical behavior therapy and they basically have four choices. You can change the situation. You can change how you feel about the situation. You can accept the situation or you can stay miserable. Which one are you going to choose? Right. right. I mean, that's really like some of our choices. That's what we have with everything that presents to us. Right. Yes. And I love that you brought up DBT because uh, in my coaching practice, it's, it's, a whole eclectic bunch of different types of things. Again, converted, like, um, why would I recreate the wheel? This is effective. It's in all the textbooks. Let's just teach it to the people. Why do we talk around it? Why do we talk around right. it? Why aren't we teaching people the art of pause? Why aren't we teaching them to be responsive versus reactive? Why are we not teaching them what assertiveness is? Because assertiveness isn't blunt and to the point. Assertiveness is open, honest, authentic, genuine, transparent communication. It's right, right. just you. And then, of course, it honors the other person so that it's softer. It's more flexible. Everything in life doesn't have to be so rigid. And, and we, you know, we don't teach things like how to visualize letting things go. You know, we, there's, yeah. there's people carry around. So, you know, we, we get, especially addicts, we get this future trip and I want to be here, but I got this bag of stuff that I got to carry around with me. All the things that happened five minutes ago, five years ago. 10 years ago, and we're carrying around this big old bucket. We've got to learn how to look at what's going to be useful and practical for us going forward. Then that goes on a shelf. The rest of it goes in the trash so that we can move forward. We, we don't teach people how to not ruminate, wallow in language. Right. And I would add this to it as well. Like these skill sets, like you said, if we don't have to recreate, you don't have to create the wheel for yourself. These skill sets are already laid out, like you have in DBT, CBT, a lot of other modalities. They're already created that are very practical that you could do. You know, even like I'm just thinking right off the top of my head, like journaling is is one way to start to put your reality out there, and that's something easy you can actually do. It's practical. It's it's action oriented. It can move that thinking. And in your journaling, though, you're writing down things that you aspire to attain, generally speaking. So as you're writing and you're getting your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your opinions, your beliefs, your needs, your wants, whatever, out on this piece of paper, seek to pull out those aspirations, those desires. And then when you pull those out and you put them into an effective action plan with all, with all of the items that are going to help you get there right? Now 
you can actually start to make them come to fruition. So you write, then you write, then you calendar, and then you put to action. Nothing happens in a vacuum. You, you have to be willing to take action. You can talk about, right. dream about all kinds of things. And what is the new word? Manifesting. Manifestation is an action word, guys. It requires you do something. You must get up off your couch to manifest anything. I like that you bring up like action. You have to move. You cannot just wait. Nothing will happen if you just wait. You got to do Nobody's something. Nobody's knocking on your door. Yeah. And those old habits, those old ways of thinking, those old things, the brain is efficient. It wants to just work fast. And if you've got these old habits that aren't serving you, they'll take over if you don't intentionally work to change them and, and work to change your environment. And I think it's also just, it is hard. You get out of treatment, you come back to that same environment. You need support, well, you need help. You come back without any dist distress tolerance and emotion regulation. You didn't right, have it before. Right. Why do you have it now? Because you spent 30 days at a treatment program getting stabilized? Yeah. No, we have to do it in our life where we're experiencing living. It's great to talk about it. It's great to learn about it. But if you're not willing, again, mindful and willing to put the practical application of any tactic has to be put to work. Right. I, right. Yeah. I, I have lots of people come to through and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, because they've been to seven different treatment programs and you know they're on their eight three laps and you know they're like i don't i don't want to go back to treatment i'm like good because it's you've done it eight times seven times like clearly we're missing something or you know so we then we get start to get in the work right. oh i know this oh i know this you know it but you've not applied it in your life that's what i want you to focus on is the practical application of the skill sets and tools that you've been given over and over let's let's get busy <laughs> I was just going to ask you, I, well, you said this, but you kind of answered my question. I was just thinking I was going to ask the question, what's the biggest roadblock that I think most people get into? And it's that application of these skills. You you know them. I kind of say it like it's like uh, you can learn how to play the piano and know how to play the piano. But if you never practice, you can't play the piano, right? You, you'll you know how to play the piano, but yep. <laughs> you know, I can read music. Right, well, I can read music as well as they used to. Yeah, and, and you the, have to practice. And the synapsis, you know, doesn't happen as quickly. So I, I have another question with that, following up on that. What do you think is the biggest roadblock to people putting that into application? Like what stops them from putting it into application? Like they know these skills. Fear, they of, change, fear they of failure, fear of change, fear of failure, willingness. Right. Because again, our ego mind gets in the way. Great. Okay. I was presented this. I get it. I understand it. But then I don't apply it. And I, and I liken this right. to the self help world. You know, self help books are wonderful. They're great motivators, but they're still not going to change anything about your life if you don't put them into practical application. And the problem Absolutely. with the book is the author who wrote it, who created it, isn't there to walk you through it. People say to me all the time, can't I just listen to your lessons and not work with you? You know, usually a, a money saving request. Right, right. No. The answer is no. Because yeah. I present it in in such a broad fashion because I have to be able to speak multiple languages. Because again, remember back to the very beginning, I found a place with practitioners that were going to speak my language. I have to be able to present. And if one of the ways that I put it in there doesn't speak to you, I've got to dig in and help it you figure out what is going to be for you. But also 
everybody's life is different. So you, there has yeah. to be that accountability measure. There has to be those daily touch points because yes. we are conditioning new ways of being. And that takes time. You cannot take a 30-year addiction and, and think it's going to be resolved in 30 days. 30 days is not undoing 30 years of conditioned any kind of behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not going to take 30 years. But again, it's still a persistent pursuit for myself. And I'm nine years. And sure, I feel solid as a rock. I've already said I can't think of one single thing that would take me out of where I'm at today. But they think that is the biggest barrier. The misnomer and the supporters are big proponents of this. Well, they went to treatment and, the, and you know, and we're going to send them to treatment. They're going to come back and be fixed. Right, right. No, no. They're going to be stabilized so that they can actually focus on doing some work. Yeah. And you got to give that brain time to slowly shift. Like you're creating new neural pathways, new ways of thinking. And the brain is efficient. It wants to go back to the old ways. It knows how that works. And you got to push it back over to the other way. Mm -hmm. To the way that creates, like you said earlier, more meaning, more purpose, more uh, the, the feeling of life satisfaction, however you want to call it. I want to drop a big bomb. Because you asked me, what do you, what do I think is the biggest barrier? What I know to be true with almost all certainty is that the lack of education around what post-acute withdrawal is, what the symptoms are, and how long it sticks around. Every client that has had a slip that I've worked with over the last seven plus years, I can directly correlate every slip relapse, whatever you want to call it, to a period of post-acute withdrawal when it was in the first two years. All right. Let's talk about post-acute withdrawal. Define that. What does that mean? Mm. I was taught this in my treatment program and it saved my life, right? It wasn't really talked about in school, but I wrote one of my first papers on it. I did. I researched scholarly articles, 13 of them. It all boiled down to like a one and a half sheeter, right? Like there's, it's just symptoms, right? It's just symptoms. And so what right. these symptoms look like for any of the ladies out there listening, you know, the symptoms are basically PMS on steroids to keep it clean. Sometimes I'll, you know, use a, yeah. use a different thing, but you know, it's basically PMS on steroids. So it's irritability, anxiety, depressive states, variable energy, mood swings, it can also be correlated to the substance, how long your use was, how severe, how, you know, your level yep. of severity. Yep. And also, I think I already said at the time, you know, how long, how long you were an active user, but it happens in cycles about every seven to 10 days. We can track it at about every seven to 10 days. Sometimes you notice it. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's so insignificant that it doesn't, it's not derailing, but sometimes it just blindsides you. So if you're feeling vulnerable and something bad happens in your life and you go pulling up to a liquor store, you're, you're, you know, you're, I, right, I've already right. was feeling yeah. anxious and I just got in a car accident. Screw it. Life stinks. La la la. That's post-acute withdrawal. Right. And, and I'm seeing more and more about it when you just Google it, you know, you can generally, I haven't seen anything that is false and I do. I check frequently. 
And I don't have anything about it on my website either because I teach it. I teach it in week one. I teach, I tell people when I have consultations with them, I'm going to make sure that you, you know, and understand this so that you're, you know, you're ready and willing to honor it. You're prepared it's, for it. You you know, to it's going to happen whether it. you like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I would totally agree with you, you know, as you, you get stabilized, your brain is still, you know, it hasn't healed. It hasn't created the resources. Hormones are off balance. Dopamine, serotonin, brain chemicals are all off balance. You feel miserable and you go in and out of those cycles as you move through this process of developing the skills. And you, you know, I want to give people hope out there that it gets better as you go, but you have to be prepared that it's going to be, can be pretty crappy for a while. I'm going to give you everybody listen up. Here's big tip. This is why I became, or why I got certified as a recovery nutrition coach and fitness. That's a different topic though. Recovery nutrition. What you put into your body, what you open your mouth and insert will make a difference. It does matter. So all you sugar people, all you high caffeine people, like we need to talk because we need to change this. We need to be eating better so that all of our organs can heal effectively, but also so that we can decrease those, those anxieties also, what we put in our mouth decreases our cravings. Right. Decreases right. our cravings. It doesn't increase. Well, of course, now if you're putting refined sugars in, it's going to increase your cravings. But, you know, so yeah, this is something I'm extremely passionate about. With good science. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I'm extremely passionate about the way that we fuel our body and our relationship with food in a recovery process. Yeah, it goes back to, you know, what you said at the very beginning, you know, creating that recovery lifestyle. Nutrition is part of that. The way you think is part of that. Your physicality, exercise, movement is all a part of that big picture of creating all those things. And you can do it a little piece at a time. You're not going to do it tomorrow. Uh, You're going to build it brick by brick. Please don't stop drinking today and think you're just going to go running. And I know it's February and everybody's already done their new year's resolution. I'm going to have dry January and I'm going to exercise every day. You know, depending on your level of severity, this may not even be safe for you. Right. And it is extremely important that you have full panel labs and you check to see how your organs are, your minerals, all these things. Like we need to know where you're at because we need to get you to a healthy baseline before you start taxing your physical body that you've already been taxing for years. Get professional help. Go. It's out there get it you do your best to find it it's out there so we're kind of coming up on our time i know we went a little bit over so what i usually do at the end is we get close i always love to ask this question which is if you could say one thing to somebody out there who might be struggling what would you want to say what would you want to tell them one thing the one thing that I, you know clearly one thing is hard for me I know. <laughs> uh, you know <laughs> that's why I asked this question because it's like you got to really uh, refine it down. I really just want to give everybody my life mantra. This is your life too. It gets to look, feel, be however you want it to. If you're not happy, if you're not satisfied, let's do something about it. Awesome. How can people find you? If they want more information, where can they go? Easiest route would just go to turning leaves, L-E-A-V-E-S, recovery.com. Or Google my name. If you can see my name and how it's spelt, just Google it. There I'll be. Awesome. I will put all the links in the show notes as well at theaddictedmind.com. 
thank you so much for coming onto the podcast, sharing your story, sharing your wisdom, all of that. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a blessing. All right. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So you can get them all there. Don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, click the subscribe button. And if you're enjoying the podcast, write a review. That really does help the podcast get a lot of exposure. And I really do appreciate it. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.